Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Welcome to the fourth episode of Design Your Life. The brief is you with cognitive neuroscience professor Joel Pearson. Today we'll be talking about creativity and what you can do to harness yours this year to unleash your potential. What creativity, and we're really excited about that because obviously we're all pretty creative around here, uh, at least we think we are. <laughs> and, you know, from my perspective, I believe everyone's born creative. I mean, mm-hmm. any kid, my kids, when they're little babies, were out, first thing they were doing was drawing and cutting things up and making a mess, but being very, very expressive. And over yeah. time, schools and education kind of, kind of dumbs it down, uh, makes you tidy, makes you neat, you know, sit down, shut up, and repeat what I say kind of thing. Uh, not you, sorry, the, the classroom, <laughs> the classroom. And, you know, that natural spark that is inside of us is sometimes stifled or, or destroyed, and we start to think that we're no longer creative. Time and time again, I have clients come into the studio, they walk up the stairs uh, in suits, for example, mm-hmm. and by the third time that they've been here, they're in T-shirts and jeans. <laughs> and they feel very excited about creativity can they, and less intimidated by creativity, which they previously were, you know, because of whatever reason. But I guess it'd be a bigger question, and it's a big question for you, is like, why are we creative? And, and are we all born equally creative? We... Okay, where should we start? Where should we jump in? Um, I think we're all born creative. I don't want to say equally creative, but we're all born creative. And I think what, what you said at the beginning is tapping into a, a, a massive problem, a looming problem, and that schools, as they are, most schools, are designed you know, in this factory era where everyone is meant to sort of be getting ready for jobs in which you are doing repetitive, fairly mundane, boring, physical things and you have to sit still and do what you're told. Obedience is very important and mm-hmm. all these things are important that, that aren't important in our lives anymore. And if you look at any of these um, surveys from governments or from the big you know, Deloitte's and consulting firms, you see that creativity is up there with, with one of the top future of work skills, future of education skills and mm. critical thinking and emotional intelligence, all these kinds of so-called soft skills. They should be called hard skills because they're hard to measure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need to change schools. It need, these things need to be sort of at the forefront of the people we want to have in the future and you know, how we want our kids to be. So, yeah, schools, the majority of schools probably, I'll go on the record, yeah, are, are not doing the best they could be doing. They're, they're big beasts. They're slow to change. Um, so there's that problem, right? And, yeah, I think we are all born creative. And then something changes. We learn obedience. We're told we're not someone. We get a trauma around playing music or drawing something and someone laughs at us and we're told we're not yeah. good at this and somewhere along this this timeline creativity becomes art and then it becomes something we think about as painting or drawing and something that's over there and it's done by a small few mm. in special circumstances and you know and it's not what we do we can't be creative you know with computers we can't be creative with accounting uh, and so we start to hear this mm. over and over and we start to believe this mm. And I don't think that's what creativity is at all. I think everything can be creative and you can be creative in any job and anything in the way you dress. Even if you are wearing, you know, the same suit every day, you can do things that can be creative. Mm. Um, and it's a huge topic. In terms of psychology and neuroscience, it's, it's on the cusp of we're just starting to understand what it is and how to measure it. So one of the big obstacles 
as we've talked about before, is measuring things in psychology. And if you can't measure it very well, how do you know what it is? How do you track it? How do you improve it? So you've got to start with good measurement. And we're starting to get there with creativity. It's still not great. There's a number of different tasks. For example, one of the most common ones is you do this test where you give people pretty mundane objects, like a paperclip or a brick, and they have to write down um, as many different uses of that thing as they can, as quickly as they can. And then those, it's also the number of different uses, and it's a brick, right? It can be a paperweight, it can be smashing a window, it can stop a car, it can save someone's life. Or, and those things are rated for how unusual and interesting they are, but also mm-hmm. the number of different things. So there's tests like that, mm-hmm. and they're kind of, you know, just listen to the way I described it, you think, well, it's tapping into something that approaches creativity, but it doesn't really hit the mark. It doesn't fully feel like the way a lot of people talk about creativity. Mm. But there seems to be something inherently important in this idea of coming up with random, I don't even like using that word, but things that are not obviously linked. What do I mean by that? Semantically, the ideas behind things. If I'm talking about um, a bank, a bank this and a bank that, and before I say the word bank, I talk about money or I talk about rivers, I'm going to prime you to think of a river bank or a money bank where you put your money. Mm-hmm. And so because those concepts are related. And so the way our brains sort of wired up is that things that are similar and they're related prime each other. And so we end up thinking and talking along these sort of sequence of similar things. Mm. And then you want to find a way to break away from that and come up with something out of the blue, so to speak, a very different idea. And that seems to be a large and important part of creativity. And then there's other things added onto that around the thing has to be valuable and useful while also unique and different. So it has to bring value and things like that. Well, that's a pressure in itself, isn't it? As opposed to just being creative for the sake of self-expression. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference, I guess, for us in terms of design company, that we, our our expression, we use our creativity uh, for commercial use. So we have someone come in and commission us to do something. We go through the process of agreeing a timeline, a budget, who's going to work on it, you know, what the outcome might be, what success looks like. And we get underway with it, with, um, with creative people who are working on, the self, on their own projects. It's kind yeah. of it's less fixed, isn't it? I mean, it's like me keep thinking about all projects for myself that I keep parking all the time because there's no one in the background saying, hey, Vince, you've got three weeks. You know, mm-hmm. This is the time frame. This is what you're going to do, what you agreed to do. Um, creativity is, yeah, as you say, it now has a kind of, a, I mean, it's obviously a huge push around the world and governments etc industries technology around kind of the creative economy and yeah. and what is it that you know that people realize that that they need new ideas not the same ideas new ideas and new ways of thinking etc and i kind of wonder about that in terms of is is ideation creativity is it in the same basket as doing a painting doing a a, a logo doing a you know, whatever kind of creative activity. It's, it's in a similar basket. Yeah, I mean, it depends how you... Like, I went to art school and I used to paint and draw. I used to love drawing. And there's parts of that which you can practice over and over. There are certain muscle movements and the f- how, how fine your muscle movements with a pencil or a paintbrush can be. Let's face it, that, that it changes how you paint or draw. It has mm. to, right? So, the hand so, eye. Yeah, like that, and, that, and that, whether you want to include that as part of the creativity or not, right? It, it sort of feels like it is, but it doesn't really feel like, you know, it feels like more of a motor movement thing. And so 
ideation maybe doesn't have the same kinds of reliances on these motor movements, but there's something at the heart of those two processes which does feel similar. Mm. They can both come up with something different, unique, or moving, uh, fresh, and then even if you don't notice it at first, it actually ends up adding value, even if it's just that way that it makes changes how people are feeling when they hear the idea or see the thing. Mm. Um, when I went to art school, I went to art school because I you know, got chucked out of tech college <laughs> and things like that. And on numerous times, I, I, I failed badly at uh, academia. Thank God there was art school. Thank God there was this safety net of a place where a whole bunch of other weirdos were and able to express themselves. When you say themselves. you failed, what, what is it? Give me some more on that. Like, do you, you, you loved it and you tried really hard. You were right into it and you still failed or no, you just I, didn't care? I didn't love it. I didn't yeah. love it. I could see, I was, I was intimidated by so many other people around me who were good at, you know, mass and science and all these other things. Um, I, was, I was just, I was better. I came naturally without me thinking about it really too much around the art classes I really, really enjoyed. Um, there's one stage I even got chucked out of my art class, <laughs> which is another story, um, which was uh, devastating for me because that was my only hope <laughs> but I didn't understand that and I think it um, for a long time it, it's it felt like art school was you know for people who just couldn't make it work in everyday life and it's yeah. over the years it's just done a massive shift towards being art schools design schools creative, creative places like that are where a hell of a lot of people want to go you know mm -hmm. that, that, that there's massive potential in creativity there's massive potential in ideas um, there's massive potential in bringing those ideas to life. You combine that with, I'm on the board of um, eLab um, at UTS, which is entrepreneurship uh, yeah. part of the school there. And it's absolutely fantastic. But that's all about ideas. And it's all about creativity. It's not a design school. It's not an art school. It's a business school. Mm. And so it's kind of really cool. I mean, I know that UTS um, the business school brought in IDEO and they kind of brought design thinking into the curriculum. Yeah. And so people are continuing trying to find new ways of thinking, new ways of kind of... I mean, I've constantly been asked to go into organizations to help them do workshops around being more creative. It could be a law, law firm or, or a bank or something. And you do the same, understanding how people think and expressing how they think and trying to helping people to improve on, their, on, on all that and feel less intimidated by that. It's really, really hard because, you know, you could be really good at your own creativity, um, but you're not necessarily good at... Um, helping a whole bunch of other people get to that same level. Yeah, so, that's, did you, so have you done that? Have you yeah. turned that into a workshop or no, have you turned that into um, a thing? Or a no, I haven't officially turned it into a thing, but I mean, over the course of my career, I've always been called into different organizations mm. to, do, to do some kind of form of creativity workshop to inspire people. It feels like there's, there's, there's a key there that needs, you know, there's a lock that needs a key to unlock it. And once we do that, we'll understand a lot more. So when we, because we've had thinking sessions in the lab trying to map out what's the best way to think of creativity. And this, it's, not a, it's not a simple thing. It's not one thing, right? So there's different components. There's my memories and how everything I've experienced, how sensitive my perception is, what I've taken in over my life, and then how those things are all linked in terms of ideas. So I, like I said before, that semantic priming and how that works. Some people seem to have um, very close-knit systems semantic networks in their brain so if i say lemon that person you know in their brain you know lemon lemonade um lemon tree green leaves a few things that are all very similar will be activated and someone else who has this sparse activation map 
will be thinking of all, you know, all kinds of fruit salad mm. and restaurants and cars and mm. yellow Ferrari and then Tesla, like it'll just go, yeah, yeah. right? And so that, there seems to be something there and that's that sort of divergence going out wide. Lateral. Going back in again and then another stage we'll get to in a second on mental imagery, I guess, where you then you simulate, try and simulate the use of the idea or the thing or simulate what the artwork might look like or sound like and then iterate through that. So there seems to be like multiple stages across this journey of creativity any way you slice it up. Mm -hmm. And there's memory, there's semantic networks, there's mental imagery, there's divergence, come up with tons of random ideas and there's editing that back in again, there's convergence coming back together again and then there's simulating and editing and and then there's the actual thing at the end that you're going to build or make or do. Mm. Um, We talk about... A lot of creative people are on the spectrum. That's maybe that's a generalization, yeah, but I, I felt that I'm, I feel like I, I'm. Well, it's been proven by my psychologist. I'm on the on the <laughs> spectrum, and I have OCD and a whole bunch of other other things, um, which are which is good and bad. I mean, it makes me obsessed. I get very obsessed and lock into things and problems. Mm. Uh, I think very. I, I seem to think differently to other to other people that I um, talk to and work with, um, and it's kind of. I just thought that was normal for a long time, and now it seems to be a bit, you know, different and odd. And and I kind of, for the long time, kind of thought the world was different. And you know, perhaps it, perhaps it's me. Perhaps how I process information and see the world. Um, you know, I, I worry about things. I worry about finding the right solution. I really worry about yeah. things being really, you know, as best they can be. And but that and that helps you get precision and um, make do really good work, right? And then what about the, that before, you, before there where you're just coming up with all these divergent ideas, do you find that you have idea after idea after idea or you just have one really good one and that, that's kind of, it's very simple? Um, from my perspective, I, I always try to have one idea, I mean multiple ideas for a project. But the more you spend on a project, the more you focus on a whole bunch of ideas and then home in on a real cracker of an idea that comes from the project and is actually, the, you know, the, the biggest part of that is actually simplification of that um, idea. Cut out all the rubbish and the kind of the noise around it and get to the heart of it. Yeah. And home in on that and craft that. That for me is like my approach because I always felt that there was one ultimate idea. And of mm, course, depending on who's worked on it, they could have their ultimate idea too. Yeah. You know, someone else might not have that ultimate idea or a group creative session might create a whole different idea altogether. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, certainly that has been over the years been the, the focus is whoever's working on the project is f- for them or the group to come up with what they believe is the ultimate solution. Yeah. And people talk about perfection is impossible and then you kind of all that stuff starts breaking away and then you go, well, why bother? <laughs> you know, why? Mm. What, what's motivating us or creative people to, to push themselves to that point, to that extent... Yeah. So Beyond it just being easy, because if it was easy, yeah. it, you would, I don't know, would, would it be such a thing? So here, as a side note, are you, are, you, are you not a fan of that idea of, you know, shipping it? You know, if you're not slightly embarrassed by something when you ship it or you publish it or whatever it's going to be, then you've waited too long, this idea that, you know, you don't want to keep work, overwork something, you don't want to be a perfectionist, mm. you want to just ship it, set a date, ship it on that date and then move on to the next thing, get your stuff yeah. up. Are you a fan of that or it sounds like you're... Um, I, I think I'm a, I'm a big. F- I mean, I'm a big fan of project managers. 
yeah, <laughs> because yeah, they're yeah. the ones that ship it. Yeah. They're the ones that keep you honest and keep things on track. I think if I ever left left to me working on a project, I'd be still working on the first project that I ever worked on, you know, 27 years later. Um, because there's always things changing. It's always, it can always be better. It can always be tweaked. Um, uh, anyways, so I think that in terms of, I, I like being very um, quick. I like, I like kind of fact, fast acting ideas, coming up with an idea really quickly. I mean, not just out of the blue, but, but, but influenced by uh, research or, or data or, you know, uh, more in-depth conversations with the client or whoever it might be. Yeah. Um, but then, it, I mean, we talked about that last time around, um, you know, I and loads of other people have the ability, like most people actually have ability, if you say lemon, then you see a lemon, in, a picture of a lemon in your head mm. or, or a le- lemon um, river or a le- whatever you say before. <laughs> um, and, and that's something, a skill again, I thought everybody had, but you, you talked about the other day that um, you'd be working with, was it DreamWorks? Uh, Pixar. Pixar, Pixar, yeah. Pixar, Disney, yeah. Um, and you discovered that some people didn't have that ability, which was quite bizarre. Yeah, so yeah, so the vis- ability to visualize and lack of it, so having a blind mind, aphantasia it's called. Mm. So we, yeah, we've known for, oh, for a long time, over 100 years, that some people don't seem to have any visualization capacity, their mind's blind. But it was really only up recently, a couple of years ago, that someone gave it the, this... Name, give it a name, aphantasia. And as soon as it was named, people just came out of the woodwork saying, "Oh my God, I have this thing." Sort of shocked, um, and often saying, "Oh, I just thought that when you said picture this in your mind, it was a you know a metaphor. You couldn't really picture a lemon." Mm. And people are often really shocked um, by that. And mm. people often think, "Well, of course you couldn't be creative. You couldn't ideate. You couldn't have ideas. You couldn't draw and paint and this and that without." A visual imagination, visual imagery, but it turns out you can. So we had uh, an exhibition of only aphantastic artists as part of this extreme imagination conference um, year before last um, in the UK. So all the artists were aphantastic and amazing artworks. I sat down with a few of them, and you say, you know, draw an apple, and they say, okay, and they draw a beautiful apple, and you say, you know, okay, could you see the apple before you drew it? And they say, no, nothing. But how do you prove all that stuff? What's that? They could just be having you on. They could be, but we have... <laughs> I couldn't get those artists into the lab, but we have lab tests we've developed um, that are objective, reliable ways to test for aphantasia now. So we can do that in the labs a number of different ways. Mm. So it is a real thing. It's verified. We have objective data on that. Mm. And indeed, um, the head animator at Pixar was aphantasic as well, and he would draw these amazing uh, cartoons without being able to visualise what he was going to draw before he drew it. So, yeah... It, it doesn't really seem to be a barrier, even though I sort of laid out this, this sort of framework of, you know, the simula- simulating ideas and things is a, an important step. It doesn't seem to be that important. You can still draw and paint and, 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 and ideate and, and be success- great entrepreneurs even without mental imagery. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting talking to my kids about this the other day and... You know, my daughter, she goes, oh, my God, yeah, I'd see things. I go, she didn't realize she was seeing things. So it's the oh. opposite, too, isn't it? It's like oh, that's cool. Yeah. Some people didn't realize they couldn't see things. Other people, or they thought that because they didn't see things, that was just normal. Yeah. And the people who, who possibly can see things or visualize images in the head don't realize they're actually seeing it. Yeah, there's, there's this hyper... I mean, she should come and see you with, get a kind of full ha- test, I reckon. But. <laughs> <laughs> there's this hyper-fantasy, which is like super strong imagery. 
So I've talked to people who say they can, they can watch a, you know, a movie, then they can recall and imagine that movie, and it looks the same. Mm. It's indistinguishable, which is very hard for me to understand and imagine because um, mm. I can't do that. Um, yeah, and then there's a whole interesting dimension you mentioned sort of on the spectrum and, and mental health that goes along with that because we know that mental imagery plays a huge part in anxiety and phobias and mm. PTSD in particular. It's sort of part of the definition almost of PTSD. Yeah, I think in whatever that stands for, um, <laughs> is it, I mean, I, I often, I've talked about this the other day around, I, I kind of look for the worst case scenario yeah. and, and uh, in any project. And in life, I think, in general. And, and that can be really debilitating mm. um, because you can have great ideas, but you don't bring them to life because you're so fearful of the, the visual you have in your mind of, of the failure or of it not working. Mm. Now, I guess that's, people have that at different levels. Um, you know, I guess no two people are the same. Yeah. Um, but that, that, some people say it's over-creative imagination or over... over, over um, but overly negative, like like catastrophizing. Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah, um, and for for a long, long time, that was really good for me because I just every project we had, I always thought about the worst case scenario. Like, here's a great idea. Yeah, but what happens if this, this, and this happened? Yeah. And some people thought that was being just me being <laughs> negative and miserable, but it wasn't. I was just kind of, in a way, testing. The, the, you know, if if you wrote that headline for that paper, um, how would other people perceive that. Is there any mm. chance they could read it a different way that would be actually misleading or have another meaning? Yeah. You know, or, or whatever it might be. I mean, an idea. Um, you know, you, you often you kind of create a clever idea within a mark, for example, that you, for you is clear as day because you thought of it and you played with it to get to that point. But other people might not, not ever see it. You know, mm. they might never kind of see that point of difference. You know, the thing that you're trying to actually, you think that, because you feel it with your whole body that that is something really special. Yeah. That uh, you're just going to presume other people are going to feel that same way. Yeah. Other designers often feel that, but not necessarily the Joe public, you know? Yeah. Um, mm. That's a whole other subject around kind of, I guess, um, symbols and um, image recognition and, you know, ideation and stuff. What's the difference between divergence and convergence? Divergence is, like I said, on that semantic network. And that is so often in ideation sessions, you'll have this thing where you're like, okay, let's just write down any ideas, as many as you can. doesn't matter how crazy they are. And then you do a thing where you, or part of design thinking, um, you know, you have unlimited budget. That don't worry about being you know, mm. unethical or moral. Like just write down or worst any case idea, scenario. worst case scenario. <laughs> and so you just get all this crap out onto paper or onto the board. And then that's, that's diverging, going out wide, right? And then you have come back to this converging to bring it back in again and start looking at each one and editing and mm. cutting, getting rid of them and crossing them off and seeing which one fit the mold, which one would be appropriate, inappropriate. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of exercises around that first part because people have a lot of trouble with that, mm. trying to free up um, the normal constraints around thinking. And so one of the things I'm a, a fan of talking about is heuristics, and it's, you know, it sort of comes up here. And so a heuristic is, is, is just the word we use in, in psychology for something. It's like the brain's shortcut for something, right? So we, can't, we don't have the brain energy to rethink everything all the time. Mm. I can look around the room and I see things that roughly look like they're probably chairs, and so they're chairs. 
enough time to check and look up your, there's four legs so, mm-hmm. um, likewise for a door that's actually a dog it's a dog <laughs> <laughs> I sit on your dog yeah um, and, and, and it's and it's interesting because I have this example of a restaurant not far from here and there's all glass walls and a glass door and we're going there it was middle of summer so it's warm all the the walls fold fold up so there's mm-hmm. no glass walls mm-hmm. and so there's still the glass door and so you can just walk around the glass door and walk straight into the restaurant right there's no it's easy mm-hmm. people keep walking through the glass door even though you've got to reach forward grab it or pull it open mm-hmm. step through it and close it again it's yeah. a lot more work because this is heuristic that that's what doors are for they're for walking through even though it's more work more effort kind of annoying people think that way so there's these heuristics that that we just don't question about our lives this is this is what the way you be quiet in an elevator or there's all these things shortcuts to thinking and that we need those shortcuts because they mm. make life easy to live yeah but then when it comes to redesigning a chair they become a massive hindrance because actually your brain is telling you pretty much not be creative not to come up with mm. new ideas it's saying look a chair is what you know is a chair it's a flat thing with a back or not a back and four legs that's a chair and so you've got to somehow get rid of that heuristic that strong message from your brain get back to first principles and say what could a chair possibly be mm-hmm. or whatever the thing is and so there's some interesting does the world things. need another chair probably does and isn't it incredible how there's so many chairs there's always some chair that's different like it's, it, it yeah, keeps, yeah, keeps evolving yeah. it's endless really yeah, and there'll be more and more, yeah. yeah. I mean, do you think in terms of, we're just talking about endless, um, do you think, I mean, I, I find sometimes that I dry up, and I'm sure a lot of people do, dry up in terms of my ideas, mm. um, or you feel like you're just blocked. Um, is it kind of a common occurrence? Um, some people struggle with being creative in the first place or feeling confident yeah. with their creativity. There's people that are creative people, that um, never seem to have an issue with it. They kind of get more and more creative as uh, the older they get and the more experience they have. Mm. Um, there's other people that kind of go through life and they kind of, they're off and on. Um, I'm often like that. There's days that I feel like really creative, lots of ideas coming. Other days I'm just like stifled. I feel like I don't have, perhaps my mind's working kind of, you don't believe in the left brain, right brain, do you? <laughs> the whole brain thinking. It's not about belief, it's about under the right situations, there is a diff- yeah, there's a clear difference. But that doesn't mean that, you know, your left brain, I'm right brain, and this kind of thing. It's, mm. it, get, it got sort of exaggerated, taken out of context of it by, by journalists over the years, yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, you go through life and you kind of, you feel like some things are just practical that you're doing. You're doing managing people, you're doing, you know, working with kids, cars, whatever you're doing, making things work. And then, okay, now I've got to be creative. I've got to pitch tomorrow morning. I've got to work with the team and have, have ideas. Mm. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you just go the flow and, and, and the ideas start happening and it kind of works. Other times you just go, you can actually feel that divide between the two. Yeah. You know, and in a way, for me, a lot of the time, I also go into this kind of procrastination mode, um, the procrastination of not committing to the beginning of ideation or getting into a project because there's some kind of mm. fear element there. Yeah, you're slightly scowling, which is worrying me. No, no, I, I just had an idea. No, I'm thinking that's my thinking phase. Oh, okay, it's, it's right. a bit of it's an issue. It's a bit of a problem, especially if I'm on stage <laughs> giving a talk and someone a Q and A at the end. I frown at people. I've been told, so I've got to. No, no, that's okay. I just, I just think, oh, geez, what, what am I saying here? No, no, I had an idea about that. So, yeah. Okay, go on. So one, of, so flow state, and this fits into creativity really well, I think. But flow state is becoming—it's kind of—it's an early science, but it's becoming more and more a, a thing. 
and people are starting to study it outside of first of all just gamers and people studying flow state and video games and stuff but now it's going out and there's more and more books on it but one of the things i hear people talking about more and more is doing something the more you go into a flow state the, more, the easier it is to get to that flow state mm. even if you you know get to a flow state surfing or skiing or boating or whatever it is then when you come back into the office or whatever you're doing something else it then gets a little bit easier to slip back into that flow state mm. and so there's evidence that if you practice getting to a flow state it doesn't really matter what you're doing if you can get to that flow state feeling right so just to define that a bit more is this state where you things feel effortless it's, things are not too easy not too hard you lose track of time you basically forget who you are doing the thing you're so you just sort of at one with the task mm. and yeah and time just goes bang just flies by so you kind of almost lose self-awareness and it's this sort of magical state that people you know ideally should get in could get into in the workplace and everything productivity goes up so this idea that you can go and do whatever you like to do whether it be biking or whatever the thing is outside of the office and then come back and every time you do that it's just a little bit easier to get in the flow state for your ideational creative mm. project at work mm. i mean I, i've definitely been in that state for uh, a long time and a lot of years like that and it's been this incredible feeling mm. because you just feel like like an athlete you feel like you're strong your ideas flow yeah you get stronger stronger quicker at the ideation etc it's interesting you say about the you focus on that one task and we talking earlier offline about technology and the phone specifically yeah. and how that one task could actually be your phone it could be social media it could be the the device itself and all the kind of all the information that that kind of brings to you live on a on a you know second by second kind of 24/7 kind of situation yeah. i personally find that quite a uh, i'm becoming more and more addicted to it and and, mm. I, and i'm quite worried about it i'm worried about not just for me but for society around how that's kind of sapping my energy um, possibly affecting my creativity the stimulus is is there it makes me think it makes me think of ideas but equally it's just it's so addictive it's playing on that obsession you know which i naturally have anyways around you know obsessive kind of personality locking onto something and really mm. uh, focusing the the phone is like for me hell in that regard yeah you know but, so but how do we how do we how does and i'm not alone there i heard a radio show the other night about a guy in toronto talking about it i think we mentioned it too as well there's another part 3 was on last night I, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> I was listening to this damn thing. Um, but it, how how do we navigate that? Because obviously, that's that's kind of really gaining far more momentum, become far more of a serious um, situation. For people, yeah, I personally struggle with it. Most people I know struggle with it. Um, kids, particularly, we're massively outgunned, right? It's like it's become like a pulling the, the lever on the poker machine, right? Mm. It's like scrolling and whatever. And these companies all have huge teams of very well paid people who know the cognitive psychology around this they know how to tweak and jig and make bright colors and sounds and make them rewarding and have intermittent reward schedules just like the rat in the Skinner box mm -hmm. those old school rat experiments right and so that's that's literally what they're doing so yeah people have talked about all kinds of things from having intermittent fasting like we talk about with food but mm -hmm. with phones and with social media one of the things i try and will hide icons or delete them if I, have, I can't delete them i'll hide them put them out of reach so it's just i have to swipe through a few screens and just that hesitation will, might be enough to i'll go eh, no, i don't need to do that mm. um switching your phone 
any all smartphones, I think, can go into black and white mode. Mm-hmm. And that just turns down that rewarding bright colors and this kind of things. How about turning it off? And then there's turning God it off. God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it, I mean, I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I, I do find it be, if I look at my, there's a data file that sends me every day going, this is how much time you spent on mm. all the apps and the phone, and that is horrific. Uh, it really is. And um, it's not as if I've got millions of followers by any means, but it's just that, that ping, that like, yeah. the news, the radio, the email, like all those things. I think you said, you take, have you taken your emails off your phone? I, yeah, I did that. Yeah, that's a very sensible thing. Beginning of last year when, yeah, I just was like, no, I need, I need to not, I need to break that reaching. And my phone's sitting arm's length from me now. It's switched, it's switched into airplane mode so I don't get disrupted. But, but as soon as I see it, I, I can almost feel my arm automatically reaching mm. just to check is, is there a message someone want, you know someone sent me something or yeah. it's just almost automatic yeah there's a i was reading the paper yesterday or no, on the weekend actually was it was an, 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 a book that's come out called the art of pottering about mm. which i thought was quite sweet because it's a very english term pottering yeah uh which means kind of i guess be around the house kind of doing kind of odd jobs and Kind of not mindless, possibly mindless acts, yeah. and that how good it is for your mental health, and and I think that that mindless task or that that space we talked about it in, in a couple of the sessions before, mm. that gap is not often where I reach for the phone. That gap of a thought, ooh, I've got an email, ooh, I've got a what so and so doing, ooh, you know, when it, there's something that's stimulating me, the thought that triggers the I grab my phone to do something, to receive something, you know, yeah. to check something. I mean, if, they didn't, if I didn't have that, I'd be more settled as a person, I think. I mean, they talked last night on the radio. I should quote what it was, the station. Um, but they, they talked about how in the old days when a computer didn't work, you used to reboot it. And they're saying <laughs> that this is really, there should be kind of a, a rebooting uh, that takes place with your phone. There should be like a um, recalibrating with the yeah. phone or well, our, the f- our brains? Well, b- both. I mean, yeah. kind of how, how we utilize that and kind of create that distance and that deliberate space. Mm. We're, I think we're going to need more and more. The, the, the technology detox is going to become really a big, a big opportunity out there for people who are helping people to do such a thing. Yeah. Um, but the need is going to gain far more momentum and become a very serious need. Um, I, I, I see that like, technology is like the new pandemic. Yeah. You know? It's it's a, what's, that's what it feels like to me. Yeah, I think it'll swing over the next whatever ten, fifteen years. I, th- I think it'll have to swing back around the other way, where you've sort of seen so far all these tech companies using or abusing our attention, right? Trying to every, this fight for our attention. Mm. You can hold it for longest, um, and there's all the ad revenue models behind that. But tech can, could also be the opposite of that. It could be, like you said, it could be built around what is best for us and having tranquil, quiet focused, deep work, flow environments where we're not disrupted and we're not pinged and we're not, you know, having the urge to grab our phones. So we both have our phones on the table and, and mine's slightly out of view, but there's experiments that show that um, just having your phone in sight on the table, even if it's switched off and you're doing a task, you'll do worse at that task, just having that phone sitting okay. there. So it's like triggering, it's, it's triggering your mind to think about what could be happening elsewhere what was happening inside the phone and so in theory you know we should put our phones out of sight like i'm doing right now mm-hmm. um if you're at dinner likewise you shouldn't have your phone on the table 
because some part of your brain is going to be dedicated to monitoring that phone in case it buzzes or lights up or something happens. Mm. And even if it's switched off, your brain's still thinking maybe you know it might still buzz or something. It's not going to just... So it needs to be out of sight, out of mind. Mm. It's, just, it's similar to the, you know, the desktop computer, although most of us now working on laptops. Mm. Is that used to be... Originally, before the internet, that was a tool. It was for type, you know, you type letters and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you, we started to design on it. You know, we had Adobe and we did um, Quark Express or InDesign at the time. And we use it as a design tool. And then the internet came after that. And so it became, you know, the internet email. It became everything again, like the phone is. The laptop is everything. And so, again, with a laptop or, or a desk computer, if you're a designer or a creative person working on that, it no longer is that single-minded tool yeah. or that single-use tool for ideation or creation. It's not like a canvas. It's actually far more sophisticated. Mm. And so, the, again, you disrupt, you disrupt it all the time. Uh, yeah. You shift from email, same screen you're looking at email, typing emails, same, same screen you're, you're designing, same screen that you're having a Zoom call. Like the, it's, it's just a multi-purpose yeah. thing, which is kind of like, I, I find that really hard to <laughs> shift. I mean, people constantly for years have talked about the benefits of that always connected, always live, yeah. always this. And I, I just find that as a creative person or as a person, a human being, I find that's taken up a lot of my time and energy. Um, mm. But in theory, we, pottering. We, we, yeah, but you can, right? You can delete those things. You, you, could, you can have just one thing, on the, but, you don't, but you, no one does, right? Because it's, yeah. it's too practical. It's too, the other benefits outweigh the, you know, I can have... Or it's just how I, it is. I can check my email anywhere. I can, I can do the work in any holiday house anywhere in the world. It mm. you know, it's, it's all this freedom that it gives me, but it also somehow, like, yeah, you said it, it changes things in fundamental ways. That and then it kind of emphasizes the fear of missing out. That am yeah. I just the only person thinking this and what's wrong with me? I'll get back into you know, utilizing it 100%. So I, I think that, um, I mean, it, with the podcast, it'd be really great to kind of talk about how people can, and we have, I guess, um, around p- how people can kind of enhance their creativity, uh, feel more confident in the potential of being creative if they're not already thinking that they are, um, how creatives get unstuck, um, because that is quite a common thing. People talk about what inspires you. You know, people talk about having ideas in showers and things like that, you know, very romantic ideas. You know, where do ideas come from? That's a good one, yeah. I mean, the lit- so there's this sort of debate in the science around that so it's like you know you, you struggle you're trying to answer this what's the solution to this problem and you try really hard and you're exhausted you give up you go home you're on the bus or that later that you're having a shower and bang some idea just pops in your head and it's, it feels almost magical right it comes mm. from no and it's very tempting to think well my unconscious mind was working on this problem the whole time in the mm. background and that is one one possibility and the mm-hmm. other one is that you, you just fatigue those parts of your brain they're exhausted you give them a nice break they're refreshed and the second that that topic comes back into my head the idea formulates so i don't think we know really which one of those it is mm-hmm. but you know we've all had that experience we hear it over and over that when you back off and you take away the pressure then all of a sudden unexpectedly an idea comes or you give up because you can't <laughs> you, you give, give up it, i yeah. quit but you've relaxed, the pressure's gone, and you're doing something totally different. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing to experience when you're going through that. Yeah. It's really interesting, too, isn't it? The, when you think about IP, 
and the value of ideas. Mm. And it's like, what's the value of an egg? You know, what's the value of milk? <laughs> like, it's just part of nature. Ideas are part of nature. We've commercialized it, right? Yeah. We yeah. put it down to someone's salary. It's now linked with someone's salary, their hourly rate times three equals, you know, the ideation, you know, over whatever period of time you quote for a job. That's what that value of that idea is. But the reality yeah. is the, the, the value of that creativity could be worth billions. Yeah. Uh, like the Nike logo, for example, you know, the, the lady got like $120 for that. I think she's been since been <laughs> compensated uh, a long time ago for, um, you know, not being paid enough for such incredible mark or valuable mark. Mm. The, what is the value of ideas? Like we, that's even more of a pressure, isn't it? Especially when the, the commercial aspect yeah. of working with organizations for idea an organization is an idea you know an idea is a color an idea is you know a whole, a whole array of things an idea is not necessarily as complicated or as deep not always as deep as i'm kind of talking about in terms of um having a, like a really ultimate idea but it can be a color it can be a texture it can be a whole array of things mm. um i don't know where i'm going with this but um <laughs> the valuation of ideas but that, mm. that's an interesting thing because it's I've heard when I've talked to the big consulting firms, this big drive away from the tradition of, you know, an hour of a unit hour of time or whatever, mm -hmm. or days, daily rate, these rates of time, trying to get rid of that and have this sort of mystical evaluation on ideas. Mm -hmm. That doesn't matter how long it takes, whether it takes two seconds of inspiration or months of hard work, the, it's the idea that you're paying for. Yeah. Because that has the power. Um, yeah, I don't. Is that is that how you see it in your work and your industry? Yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's, like it's really hard to convince a client if you did it in five minutes that it's. <laughs> Paula Cher famously said when she was working on the Citigroup logo, you know the umbrella logo. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, she did it in five minutes, but it was she said it was forty hours, forty years, and five minutes. In the yeah, you know, and I mean when you you know, got a good client who gets that, then it's then yeah, not a problem. Mm. Um. But science is the same way. So that's, that's one of the things I'm fascinated with science is that it's not a linear process. That each hour of work and day of work you put in doesn't get you a day's result. Mm. Nothing much can happen, nothing. And then you have an idea and you, oh, wow, and you try the experiment and it, fall, it changes everything. So everything can change in one afternoon. Mm -hmm. And then nothing, it'll be quiet for a while. And so it, someone could discover something tomorrow which completely changes our understanding of reality, of physics, whatever it might be, right? And so in that one discovery, everything can change. A black, black swan event, as people call it now. Mm -hmm. um, and it is completely non-linear. It's not about the amount of time you put in. Yeah, and that's, for me, talking about creativity and art, because I went to art school and then PhD in science, is, is that, that the similarities between those two spaces is something in that non-linearity. Something around everything can change just like that. Um, so mm. it's not about an hourly work or this or that. Obviously, people are beaving away on AI, and AI, artificial intelligence, is making massive advancements. Yeah. Um, do you think whatever form that takes is going to be learned to become creative? Yeah, that's will the trump us at our creativity. Question. That's the question. I think it's a fair chance that it, that it will. Yeah, yeah it's think. kind of scary to say that, and people keep talking about you know. These creativity is the last bastion, this thing yeah, yeah. That's, that's out of reach of AI. But, you know, we're starting to understand. We have psychological models of what it is. We have deep neural networks that can learn these things. And the, 
the amount of data we're collecting is going up so quickly now exponentially that this AI is going to be able to just learn phenomenal things. Mm. Um, and I think I don't see any strong reason for why they couldn't. No, neither do I. Like just knock us, surpass us, and then and then some, right? And that really worries going. me. You know, it really worries me that um, that it can it can it can follow every move I make and follow every decision I make, impulse, influence, inspiration, and how I react to, you know, that stimulus. It can be that difficult to learn that. So, that, and that's a th- who's uh, Tony Robbins apparently is doing this, right? So he because he records every single one, you know, his, his workshops that he runs, uh, and he has however many thousands of hours of, of him working with people and clients, and and so apparently they're tr- they're trying to have make a digital AI version of Tony Robbins, where this AI is going to train on all of these things, and it's going to keep training till it can predict and basically respond in the same way that he would with all those thousands of instances and then write, and then it gets put with people afresh and, and to see how it behaves and it responds like him. So this digitization of a human being mm. is, is in the cards. It's happening now. People are trying to do that. Mm. Yeah, they'll um, definitely succeed at that. Just around kind of creativity and the, and the joy that it brings. Let's, let's dump AI quickly. Let's go back to the, <laughs> pleasure, of, yeah, the pleasure of human creativity and... The, the mind and thinking and ex- exploration and and making marks or whatever it might be, whatever form that might be. I, f- I find that, you know, I guess traditionally, I guess I've always worked with a commercial purpose. I've always been a creative person that has always had creative tasks kind of come through the door right from clients. So mm. there is a, there is a commercial benefit from that. The, the, what's it like to, you know, how, how, how might one shift from, a creative person who's been putting their energy into such kind of business to shifting towards more self-pleasure, I guess, uh, creativity through yeah, self-expression and without a, without a commercial focus. Because it just feels like every time now, any, any conversation about any idea, any form of creativity or anything that we might do, it goes, people go straight into the entrepreneurship yeah. side of things. So like, it's got to be a startup. It's got to be a product. Could it's got to be, be a thing. Yeah. You can make millions. <laughs> you know, yeah. everybody would want that. You know, it's like you go, well, what if I just felt comfortable yeah. with not telling the world about it? What if I felt comfortable about just doing it for my own satisfaction, which I presume is how us humans used to be. Yeah. There is this movement that sounds very similar to that. I'm trying, I can't think of the name where it's about not the opposite of scale. It's about doing something beautiful, small, perfect, and crafting it rather than trying to make something for everyone and change the world and all this kind of thing. But how would someone make that transition? Um, yeah, because it's going to be hard where, where if you've had this sort of lens that you've mm. been looking at everything through you know, the potential for it to solve a billion-dollar problem worldwide or hung, you know, whatever it's going to be to something very different you need a different compass, right? You need to sort of circle around and come back. What I can say, and this is not really based on you know, published science or anything, it's more based on my experience, that when I'm doing that, I will circle back. My compass often is just curios- curiosity. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's yeah. undervalued, not talked about enough. And we see it in children a lot, young people. And just to have that, what, whatever, to be curious about anything, it doesn't matter if it's how trees work, how a butterfly flies, why the glass in my glass is the way it is. It doesn't really matter what it is, but finding that thing that you're inherently 
just curious about. Mm-hmm. Who cares why? It doesn't matter. It's not about making something, keep it private so no one laughs at you, whatever it is, and just leaning into that, following that curiosity. Mm. And I often will, you know, if I feel burnt out, then I'll take a break. And when that curiosity comes back, often on something completely different, that's when my excitement comes back. Mm. And at first... It, I will be in that ambiguous grey zone, as I could call it, where it doesn't make sense. Kind of like mm. we're talking about. It does, I can't see the application of that or why, how that's going to be an experiment if we're talking about experiments. Mm. But I'll, I'll say, oh, that's fine. I'll just lay off on that and just give myself time and space to follow that thought through and that train of thinking if it's five minutes or days or weeks. Just play with it. Mm. And often it ends up being something. It's a bit like, um, I give, go back to children. Children are kind of massively curious curious, curious um, because they're new, they're fresh, yeah. they're, they're you know, not been long on this earth and everything is new and exciting to them. They're questioning continuously, seeing what, what, how things work, etc. Um, I think that's fascinating. If you could maintain that throughout your life, it would yeah. be spectacular, I think. Um, because the world is, every day it is new, it's not the same. You know, people, yeah. like you said about people walking to the restaurant with that glass door and they could, could if they were you know, self-aware, understand that they can walk around it. They don't because they're not actually seeing the world. Mm. They're just presuming it's the same. They're presuming that it just is what it is. Um, you often see people, some creative people kind of walk around with their mouths like jaw dropped and looking at big eyes, looking at all kinds of stuff all the time and they're just wired that way. Yeah. Whereas other people just looking at the ground and getting from A to B, um, yeah. maybe inward uh, thinking, etc., or whatever. But the excitement of being alive the excitement of not taking things for granted, um, seeing potential in everything, being surrounded by abundance, which we are, all of us, even at times of, you know, might feel like we're, you know, things are terrible or there's not much opportunities. You know, we are, it's, it's a mindset. If you shift that mindset to um, abundance, to a more positive out, outlook mm-hmm. in life, which I know is not always easy, but it's definitely makes a huge difference to, how you feel and what you do and your contribution to the world, etc. Um, it's funny because we t- we're talking about, the reason why I kind of talk about um, my own personal creativity around breaking away, if it's such a term, uh, to doing you know, something, designing some rugs, designing a paint, doing a painting, whatever it might be. I naturally shift into that, watch out Damien Hurst, here I come. <laughs> you know, I'm the next <laughs> Damien Hurst. I can do circles. Um, and, and it's... Um, I can, I can sh- cut a shark and have... No, I wouldn't want to do that. But I mean, perhaps we haven't kind of got to that point. But I do feel, for our listeners, I want to make sure people don't think that everything they do has to be commercially viable. Uh-huh. You don't have to be thinking about how to become a multimillionaire. I listen to some chat rooms and I just, I guess, I have to get off them. I just think, this it's seen thousands of people talking about, I've made a million bucks, I've made seven figures and... I've done this, I've done that, and like, I have the secret to success. It's like, Jesus Christ. You know, what, about, what is your contribution? You know, what do you do in your downtime? Where, what is your, where's kind of the just being a good human? Uh, where's that all gone, you know? Yeah. I feel like it's a reaction to that. And I feel like it feels like it's almost like you know, going from living in the city, which a lot of people have done just recently with, with COVID, of shifting to working an hour, two hours, even further out of the city. They moved to more rural environment because they want to be amongst nature. They want to be in a place that makes them feel better. Yeah. That they're not amongst the whole busyness of, of life, you know. 
And I feel like that, that stepping away from the phone, that's, that have creating time between you and the phone to focus on how your mind and body and everything kind of works, how, how you can kind of utilize time to do nothing, or how can you use time to do something that is actually making you feel better, or doing t- using time to to help others, or do, you know, just not kind of filling it with necessarily the commercial aspect that we're all so obsessed by. Yeah, and I know that we have a we've got to make the economy work, etc. But it kind of is kind of seen as that, that kind of form of stepping aside traditionally has been seen as being lazy or drop out or a lot of negativity around yeah. that, you know, but, but alternative. The irony is that, that you often see when someone does that, that, they circle back around with a big idea or big, something big and from left field that has the power to change a discovery or whatever it might be. And you need that space and time away from those small details and the daily grind to sort of get the bigger picture and see where things are at and then for something new to emerge. Um, I certainly, in science, you, you, if you don't, if you, if you just work all the time on solving these little problems, you forget to ask, like, what am I actually doing? What should I be spending my time on? And you need that distance and space to figure out, like, what needs new ideas, what needs mm-hmm. my time and effort mm-hmm. to change things. It reminds me of, you know, when I was visiting China one time and talking to graduate students there, and, and they were working seven days a week. This is PhD students. Um, in neuroscience, working seven days a week, you know, in, in the lab till 10 p.m. every day, you know, like mm. long days. And I said, well, don't you ever take some time off and just sort of think about are you doing the, are you studying the right thing? Are you, is a PhD right for you? Is this topic right for you? You know, are, are the problems you want to solve the right problems to change the world? And, it, Crikey. and they, they had not thought of that because it was so competitive that they just have to, every single minute they can do their thing more. But whenever I've worked like that, I've just gone, my, my ideas have gone downhill because you get, yeah. burnt out and you, you become a great, fantastic factory worker but yeah. the big picture the big ideas get lost and so I'm not saying that the reason to step away is that you're having bigger ideas for bigger commercial success but that can be part of it as an interesting side benefit or silver lining hmm. but yeah I think we all have to step back and do the thing for the inherent pleasure and beauty of the thing itself yeah. in your experience and your knowledge around creativity and thinking how the brain works are there certain times of the day that are better for ideation is there certain foods we could eat apart from spinach <laughs> you know there's things that we can eat exercise all that or must pay play some part in uh the quality of our thinking and our yeah ideas. so so what yeah there's differences in the day the morning and the afternoon and different kinds of tasks have done better so we tend to this oh, what's the michael pollan's book on this isn't it there's a great book on this where you know you analyze millions of operations and the, all the, the mistakes and surgery tend to happen in the afternoon, right? Not mm-hmm. the morning. And so there's, if we're doing something that's highly cognitive demanding and things like that, we want to do that in the morning when we're fresh. If we want to do something that's more that divergent, crazy idea, then the afternoon is probably better. We don't want to be highly caffeinated when we're um, doing ideation. We're coming up with ideas because that's going to sort of put the blinkers on and constrain. Mm-hmm. So there's this famous... Um, techniques by famous American inventors where he would sort of sit in a comfy chair, hold um, was it a big steel brass ball or something in his hand <laughs> until, until he just nodded off and then drop it and you wake up. 
and the modern version is just holding a, you know, a set of keys in your hand. Mm. So this idea that if you can get to the stage where you're just falling asleep and, and also be thinking about a problem and then drop your keys, you wake up and you hold it again just. And so you just keep bouncing around this semi-conscious version of almost sleep that you'll have these wacky ideas and things will merge. And, and I think there's some, good, some data now to actually support that. Certainly is around napping as well. Um, and with modern you know, EEG devices, you can kind of do, do a tech-based version of that. But there's something around that. And that opens the door right to this sort of you know, altered states of consciousness. Um, you have a bunch of Nobel Prize winners swearing that if they've never done LSD, they wouldn't have had the mental capacity to you know, look at the strands of DNA and imagine them and twirl them around in their mind. They wouldn't have had the, the discovery they've had and people swearing by that. So there's this rich history of altering your state of consciousness to mix and blend and come up with radically new ideas. Yeah. Um, pretty hard to study in yeah. the lab, but, but there's a rich history there that a lot of people do swear by. A lot of famous musicians have you know, said that's how they got their yeah. best work. I think Fleetwood Mac, Red Hot Chili Peppers, like a whole bunch of... Uh, uh, individuals and bands that, that you know were constantly high. Yeah, painters, artists. That yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, exactly. It's well, look, it's been really great catching up with you uh, today and talking about creativity. Obviously, it's a massive subject. We could talk about it for for days. Yeah. And I'd like to come back to it again in the near future and kind of maybe go into a more in depth in a specific kind of areas as well. I hope mm. that people have kind of kind of got from that what I've certainly got about around from the excitement around creativity and just the kind of that constant desire of, of how to um, untap kind of a, your ideas. Um, the, the thought that you don't have, it's kind of, I often get trafficked for, you know, time during my day. Connie puts in certain times of my day to work on ideas or whatever. Yeah. Um, those times come along and I have to park it because I just, I'm just like oh. dried up <laughs> or whatever. And, um, you get behind and then the more and more stress happens. But anyways, thanks again, Joel. Thanks for coming in. Our pleasure. Always fun. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Design Your Life. The brief is you. Listen in next week as Joel and I talk about how you can apply design principles to design your life. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about designing your life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Foss Collective. If you enjoyed this episode and found it inspiring, please don't forget to review or subscribe.